Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined, as always, by Bill Galston of Brookings, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. Our special guest this week is National Review Senior Editor Ramesh Panuru. So glad you could all be here. Thanks. All right, let's begin with uh, the Democratic race, the New Hampshire primary now in the rearview mirror, which Bernie Sanders won by a hair. Uh, That is, um, he got the largest percentage vote of any candidate with 25.7% of the vote, um, and uh, just just about a point and a half uh, beyond what Buttigieg got and a couple points above uh, Amy Klobuchar. We'll get to them. But uh, just a quick note to start us off, um, this was not uh, a blowout for Bernie Sanders. In 2016, he got more than 60% of the vote in New Hampshire. So, um, Ramesh, why don't you start us off with, um, you know, is this, the, is this the moment for a stop Bernie movement in the Democratic Party? I am beginning to think that we're not going to see a Biden-Warren ticket on the <laughs> Democratic side. I do think that if you are one of the many Democrats who is concerned about Bernie Sanders, either because you oppose his agenda substantively or because you think he would be a big political risk to nominate, then you should be very concerned about these results. Because while it is true that he's got minority support inside the Democratic Party, he did not have a commanding victory. When you say minority, in in this case, you're referring to the numbers, not to ethnic. Whether whether a lot of non-white support in significant numbers remains to be seen since it hasn't been tested in Iowa or New Hampshire, which doesn't have them. Right. Um, He does have a very hard core of support that is extremely dedicated to him. And New Hampshire and Iowa did not winnow the more moderate candidates. So you have a situation where he's got a strong base of support. It's not clear who the alternative is going to be. I think each of them, you know, when you're t- whether you're talking about Klobuchar or Buttigieg um, or Bloomberg, for that matter, there's a case to make for any one of them being the strongest potential anti-Sanders candidate. There are negatives to each of them. But it can take a long time to sort those things out, and they may not end up having that time. Yeah. I mean, things are now moving very, very quickly with the Nevada coming right up in about nine days, and um, and then uh, South Carolina immediately the following week. Um, so, but let's, I think it would be interesting to go through the candidates who are still surviving. And I don't know if you want to count Elizabeth Warren in that category or not. I kind of think she's done, but maybe not um, open to open to possibility. But I think it would be interesting to discuss the strengths and weaknesses of the remaining candidates. Damon, why don't you um, make a case for who you think is the strongest general election candidate of those who remain? Well, I mean, my instincts, both personally and as an analyst about who I think would do best, is is that it would be Amy Klobuchar, uh, who kind of has my my personal linker endorsement at this point. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I'm a little hesitant to to go in too strongly in her favor as far as the analysis goes, just because. Her, her ability to gain traction has only, uh, shown itself very recently. I mean, she really languished around 2% for month after month on debate stages with a large audience. And so I would like to see whether she can actually build on what she's done over the last 10 days. That would be great. Um, obviously the other moderate option is, is Pete Buttigieg. I, I frankly, I, I was intrigued by him when he first launched his campaign. He gave some interviews where he came off as I thought very knowledgeable and interesting, uh, and, and compelling in a way, but he's sort of, as his polling has shot up through the roof, he's become more and more platitudinous so that he just seems to speak in airy bubbles. Uh, I, I almost, I don't even know what he really stands for beyond kind of 
empty hope and change Obama era, like 08 rhetoric. Well, that, but, that, that but worked without, out well without, for Obama. <laughs> it did, but, but it, for, with Obama, it was always mixed with a real kind of grounding in, in real stories and in his own compelling, uh, life story and, uh, and ambitions. And, uh, so there, it, it seemed to actually have more, more gravitas to it, where, whereas, Pete just seems to be kind of being like almost like a, a random uh, platitude generating machine. <laughs> so, I, but yet he seems to be doing well. I, I'm not too thrilled at that prospect. And then, of course, there's Biden who appears to be heading off of a cliff now, which I, I sort of thought he was going to be doing uh, for months watching his debate performances, but it's only really hitting now, I suppose. Linda. Do you think that Pete Buttigieg is a moderate? Well, just jumping off of what uh, Damon just (laughs) said, I think Pete Buttigieg may be the Marco Rubio uh, of this race uh, in that he speaks in full paragraphs and perfect sentences, and he does seem to have some substance. Uh, But then that's not necessarily what voters are looking for. I I don't know that he is... um, I don't frankly know what his politics are. He seems moderate, but in part that is because he has a moderate tone. Um, and and I think that often uh, is what determines. I mean, Klobuchar is clearly the moderate among the Democrats. Uh, and she's my number one choice for vice president. I don't see her being able to beat Donald Trump. And so my choice would be Mike Bloomberg. Uh, I think a Bloomberg Klobuchar ticket would be great on New York City and, and Midwestern, uh, uh, you know, senator, a New York mayor and a Midwestern senator, I think would be a great ticket. Um, and I think Bloomberg is the one who has the most crossover appeal to people like me. I mean, I could vote for Bloomberg with pretty good conscience. Well, Bloomberg would win the Bulwark primary for sure. <laughs> Not sure it gets you very far in the Democratic Party, but uh, but so Bill, um, do you will you uh, sign on to Linda's uh, ticket here of uh, Bloomberg Klobuchar? We could do worse, <laughs> and probably will, as the old saying goes. <laughs> uh, well, first of all. The idea of a real billionaire going up against a fake one has, you know, a certain frisson. Yes. Oh, <laughs> right. just, yes. Just to interject, that is one of Bloomberg's better lines. He says, yes. you know, we people say, do you really want to have a campaign that pits two New York billionaires against one another? And he says, really? Who's the other one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the one hand. Nobody doubts you know, his self-confidence. He will not have any qualms about standing on the same stage with someone he regards as his inferior in every respect. Uh, and he didn't get to be worth $60 billion and you know enjoy, if that's the right verb, three terms as mayor of New York. Uh, as a shrinking violet or as as someone uh, afflicted with debilitating modesty, which nobody has ever accused him of having. He has unlimited resources, uh, and he would he would be able to deploy them toe-to-toe and dollar-for-dollar dollar with whatever Trump and the Republicans could throw at him. He could double what Trump and the Republicans are spending right. easily and easily. never feel it. Right. Well, of course, because <laughs> I actually did a back-of-the-envelope calculation. His capital is $60 billion. A mediocre rate of return on $60 billion is 7%. So he could spend $4 billion this year without dipping into capital <laughs> and, may, and may end up doing just that. Uh, <laughs> there... There is, of course, a problem, and that is the Democratic Party is a big, diverse coalition, and he may have some trouble mobilizing it. That's on the negative side. On the positive side, there are votes 
among independents and even moderate Republicans that he could get probably to a greater degree than any other candidate in the race. And so he's probably the only one who could survive an outright revolt on the left and still have a reasonable chance of putting together a plurality. Uh, If I could wave, wave a wand and get someone nominated at this point, it would be Klobuchar, not Bloomberg. But uh, uh, the last time I checked my backpack, I didn't have that wand <laughs> in it. Yeah, <laughs> look, yeah oh, I, Go ahead, Ramesh. I've been saying that Klobuchar has all of the traits you'd want for a formidable general election candidate, save one, which is the ability to win the nomination mm-hmm, in the first mm-hmm, place. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think you know we, we have a chance at a... Sanders-Bloomberg race, which would be really interesting, the socialist versus the billionaire, neither one of them having real ties to the Democratic Party. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that is true. And, and uh, do, do parties really matter? Does party loyalty? Of course, the current occupant of the Oval Office wasn't a Republican for most of his life either. He was everything so. but a Republican yeah. for most of his life. <laughs> yeah, all right. He was in the Reform Party and he was in the Democratic Party. Yeah. No, so so now, there, now, there is something we haven't talked about yet. Yeah. and uh, It's a lot we haven't talked about well, yet. But, uh, but on, the, <laughs> on this question... Uh, you know, I have I have seen information suggesting that a surprisingly high percentage of core Democrats uh, believe that a woman would have a harder time defeating Donald Trump than a man, and I'm actually astonished at how pervasive this sentiment is among people who show up for primaries, who are mm-hmm. part of the infrastructure of the party, et cetera. I'm not sure they're right about that, yeah. but I am sure that the fear is there, and that's an additional impediment uh, that someone like Amy so Klobuchar would have to overcome. So you know the expression, thanks Obama, that was so popular when he was president? It was the sarcastic little meme that went around that, you know, whenever anything went wrong, people would say, thanks Obama, you know, whatever. They 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 couldn't get a parking space or whatever it was. Um, But um, so it was kind of a joke. But I I have to say that this view, which I agree is out there, that a woman cannot win against Trump, um, I I think we have to say thanks, Hillary, because she, I believe she has poisoned the well. She was so personally unpopular and she was perceived to be corrupt and she was perceived to be false and all these things that... Um, now people have looked at her defeat and said, well, it must have been most, it must have been at least in part because she was a woman. And I don't know, that may or may not be true, but I think it's awfully difficult to peel away how much of the vote in 2016, for example, in the Democratic Party, which is not supposed to be the party that's got sort of, you know, antediluvian views on, on women's roles, right? And yet, People turned out in droves to vote against Hillary Clinton in the primaries in the Democratic Party. Um, what was that about? It wasn't. It, was it? Was it against women? I don't think so. I think it was against Hillary. Well, I've always thought that the first Republican president is going to be uh, first woman president is going to be a Republican. Um, I think there is, and and if there was ever a candidate who sort of overcame the concerns about whether a woman was tough enough, for example. Hillary did that. I mean, she was tough as nails. That was not her issue. I don't think Arguably she was- Arguably too tough. Too, yeah. I don't think her problem was that she was a woman. I do think questions about her ethics and the Clinton Foundation, and uh, she just wasn't likable to you know, invoke, uh, I guess- you know, Obama said she was likable enough, but likable enough is not necessarily likable enough to become president. And Klobuchar, I don't think, uh, suffers from that. I think, you know, she comes across, she's got a sort of good sense of humor and she's self-depreciating when she, you know, talks about herself. Um, I think her problem is I don't get the gravitas there. Even though she's very accomplished, she's had some very accomplished job. She's done a lot in the Senate. Somehow she doesn't project that from uh, the stage. And so I think that I think that she would have a harder time just on the female 
uh, issue than, for example, Hillary did. And I do think it's, um, I think it's going to be a very, very special woman who becomes the the first uh, woman president. And I think somebody who's perceived as tough, particularly in foreign policy and defense issues. Um, and I think that's more likely to be a Republican woman than a Democrat. Although that was that was one of the defining features of Hillary Clinton's I agree. two races for president. No, I agree, but I, I, I don't think she didn't win because she was a woman. I, I totally yeah. uh, But it wasn't, it wasn't because she was squishy, soft, and no, lavish no, on defense absolutely. either. No, 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 no. no. no it had no. Stipulating, she, go ahead. stipulating for the sake of argument that um, it would be a risk that there would be negatives with nominating a woman uh, as the presidential nominee again. Uh, that has to be balanced against the other risks that are out there. So even if it is a negative, is it as harmful and risky as nominating a self-declared socialist? Right. Somebody oh, who well. wants to outlaw private health insurance. Exactly. Um, I think you could say maybe it is a problem, but it's not that big of a problem. Or look, I mean, you well, know, Bernie's you a need disaster. To, we, get, need, we all yeah, we that. agreed on that. Look, uh, uh, you look, you, you, you glance down the list of the candidates that are still viable. And I think, Klobuchar, I mean, I, it, with Bloomberg, there's a little bit of a complication because of his because of his wealth, so that that changes things. Um, but um, with uh, with Pete Buttigieg, uh, yes, he's a wonderful talker and he's you know very impressive and he has great self command um, and uh, doesn't get rattled and so forth. That's all that's all terrific. But then he is 37 or 38 years old. Um, he is the mayor of a small, small city, a former mayor of a small city. Um, it, 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 and he's gay. So there are some, you know, who knows how many people leave aside the, you know, won't vote for a woman. How many people won't vote for a gay guy for president? We don't know, but it's a risk. Okay. It's a risk factor. Rush Limbaugh certainly thinks yeah, that a lot and, of and people mentioned won't. It. Yeah. Uh, that was charming. But, <laughs> but, um, so, so that's the risk with, with Buttigieg. Also, he's completely untested. Who knows um, what you might wind up with. Um, with uh, with uh, Sanders, we know what uh, his weaknesses are, um, and uh, and with um, with Klobuchar, she really doesn't have. Any, I mean, what's the worst thing that anybody has ever found about her? I mean, admittedly, they don't do the kind of vetting of of Senate candidates that they do of presidential candidates. But so far, it's that she's been mean to her staff and that she ate a salad with a comb or something. Some so ridiculous She's, she's relatively moderate and she's mean to liberals. What's not to like? <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Uh, but um, Reserving but, my right to object. <laughs> but look, you know, she's, she's not too young. She's not too old. She's from the Midwest. She's not too lefty. I mean, on the abortion issue where, you know, I asked you earlier whether uh, Pete Buttigieg is a moderate. I, I don't. I don't know necessarily what he is, but I, I know he's taken a number of positions that ain't moderate. Um, one of them is on the, you know, abolishing the Electoral College, changing the number of justices on the Supreme Court, um, and, uh, and, and on abortion. He danced around the question, you know, with a lot of footwork, but basically came down on the side of saying that you cannot be a good Democrat and be pro-life. Whereas Amy Klobuchar says, Yes, you can. And I, she says, I'm pro-choice, but I want us to be a big tent. And, and and then she went on to talk very positively about adoption. And this is this is a huge, huge opening for people who otherwise find the Democratic Party ideologically rigid and unwelcoming. So uh, I I think that she is the best uh, their best bet. Now now we're going to talk in a bit about about the problems that. Uh, that Bloomberg brings, but um, but based on those candidates, I do think that she is the strongest. And you know, arguably, look at what happened in um, the New Hampshire primary. Um, if you added up the vote totals of Buttigieg, perceived as a moderate, Klobuchar, Biden, and Yang, you got to fifty five point four percent of the primary voters choosing somebody uh, other than Sanders or Warren. Together, they got. Thirty-four point nine percent, and Sanders himself, as I mentioned, you know, got about twenty-six. So, um, 
So, so the voters seem to be saying that they are ready for someone who is um, more moderate, and they seem quite worried about going too far left, and uh, and and thereby ruining their chances of unseating Trump. Now, a lot of people look at the primaries, and they are seeing, you know, they're having. PTSD flashbacks of 2016 and the Republicans with Trump ahead and the opposition to Trump divided and him marching toward the nomination. Um, But uh, Damon, let me bring you in on this. I mean, there are big differences, right, between um, the Democrats' way of nominating uh, presidents and the Republican way. Well, sure. I mean, although I, I uh, you may have seen my my take on the on the primary the other night, the New Hampshire primary was exactly what you just uh, ran down with the parallels between 2016 uh, among the Republicans and what's going on now, or at least what seems to be set up. Although though there are some differences, then as now you had a kind of anti-establishment populist running in the field. Not doing particularly well, uh, as you know, the same calculus you just went through of adding up the more mainstream candidates seem to outnumber the insurgent by a lot. So we spent a lot of time in 2016 talking through like, well, there's the not Trump vote. Well, we just have to wait for it to consolidate and then right. it'll totally clobber Trump. But it never happened because the field remained divided. Now, some of the differences between then and now, one, Sanders' ceiling so far in the first two contests is about 26%. Trump's in the early contests was more like 35 That's a big difference. So he was all, Trump was already, uh, he already had a, a larger base, if you will, in the party by about nine points over what Sanders does. Secondly, uh, the Republican primaries, or at least most of them, were winner-take-all, which meant that every time Trump managed to just barely win a plurality, he would grab all the delegates, which gave him an advantage and allowed him to lock down the nomination earlier, late April, early May. Whether uh, Sanders could do that, we don't know. Um, we do know that the Democrats do not have a winner-take-all system. Exactly. I was yeah. just going to say that. They're yeah. doing proportional representation in this year more than ever, which means that in you know in these first two contests several candidates have gotten bits and pieces of delegates and if that continues with Sanders Sanders can keep winning just barely but if other candidates like Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Bloomberg soon uh, start almost winning coming in just behind him it's going to be a kind of real horse race all the way through and there really is it isn't going to be likely that uh, Sanders or really anybody is going to be able to lock down the nomination before uh, we get to the uh, the actual convention in July. So it's sort of like Trump in 2016, but even more chaotic uh, this time around. <laughs> if you liked last season's chaos. <laughs> it's, so, it's, it's so telling about both parties that the Republicans would create a system that is basically designed to reward winners. And the Democrats would create a system that is bends over backwards to be fair to losers. <laughs> right. It's true. Right. You get a participation award yes, in yes, the Democratic you do. Party, you right? Um, okay. Does anybody want to say a uh, say Kaddish over the uh, or Elizabeth Warren race? Oh, well, the only thing is I will miss her on Saturday Night Live. I thought the Kate McKinnon's Warren was really terrific. And I also do a pretty good Warren, but... Since we're a podcast and it requires my jumping around and waving my arms, I'm not going to do it here. Um, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't. I mean, my own. I mean, Warren isn't doing so bad that she's impossible to come back. But you have true. to look at the calendar and say, you know, okay, where is her last stand? At least Biden has his supposed South Carolina firewall, and that will be the test. If he doesn't hold the African American vote, he's toast. But there's no, I mean, where is Warren actually going to win something? And I don't, I don't see it myself. Bill, do you want to um, update your views on Joe Biden's chances? Update? <laughs> do you mean repudiate? <laughs> yeah, right. Disavow. I, I, I do. I don't think I Bill do. ever said anything uh, about Joe Biden having a chance, Mona. I oh, no, no. Misremember. <laughs> okay. Look, uh, you know, the reality of, of the Joe Biden 
at least of this year, on the stump turned out to be so far from the idea of Joe Biden or even the memory of Joe Biden. Uh, uh, yes, I thought he would do considerably better. And, uh, and I think an enormous number of Democrats are disappointed that he didn't because his failure to live up to expectations was the necessary condition for the chaos that we're now seeing in the non-socialist majority of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. uh, and just to underscore the point that Ramesh made a, co a couple of minutes ago, there was a Gallup survey that just came out uh, where people were asked about 20 questions of the form, would you vote for an X mm -hmm. for president? Yeah. And there were only there were only two that ended up below fifty percent, and one was a socialist. What was the other? A Muslim. A Muslim, mm -hmm. right? And it used to be an atheist. Well, the atheist. The atheism is now Creeping in the up? in the fifties. In the fifties, which okay. is not you know what you'd want in a presidential <laughs> candidate, but it's better than socialism. So that is that that's just that's just unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but entirely possible. Before we move on. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so um, before we move on to our next topic, uh, um, Ramesh, you had a couple tweets about uh, health care that I would love you to just describe really quick if you can, um, because uh, the role that, that health care, health care played a huge role in this campaign. Um, and uh, And it's it, it has its ironies. I mean, Elizabeth Warren really sank because she endorsed the health care plan that the so-called winner of the first two primaries um, authored. Uh, so uh, so she's gone, but he sails on. But uh, you, you were tell us about the tweet about the other nations in the world. You were responding, I think, to Bernie Sanders. Right. So Senator Sanders has often said and, and reiterated today that all of these other countries have done it, so why can't the United States? This isn't a crazy idea. And my point was just that other countries actually haven't done what Sanders wants to do. Most of the countries that have universal coverage have not achieved it via single payer. Even those that have single payer often have differences with his very generous system, which is lavish benefits, no co-payments, um, no premiums, no deductibles. Of course, most people don't like co-payments, et cetera. But part of Sanders' promise is we're going to cover more people at lower cost. Well, one of the ways costs get kept down is by actually insisting on these payments. And then the other difference is that none of these other countries started out with as developed and costly a system as the United States has. So to make his w numbers work, you'd have to have a real uh, clampdown on hospital costs, on doctor salaries of a kind that I think single-payer advocates in the U.S. are not really willing to openly defend and could not achieve. Mm. You know, I, I just always remember being on a show with a friend who's a Democrat um, who had a sister who got brain cancer who happened to live in Canada. And, of course, this was at a time when Democrats all believed in, you know, let's have single payer, let's, you know, make it free. Well, interestingly, um, her wait to get even the MRI that she needed was so long that she came to the United States to get treatment. So this idea that somehow, you know, we have this terrible health system, we still have the best health system in the world. Does it serve everyone equally? No, it does not. But if you are going to start providing the kind of service that Bernie Sanders is talking about, we're going to have much more uh, a system similar to Cuba's or the Soviet Union back when there was a Soviet Union. It's going to be really lowering uh, the availability and and the kind of edge that we have in terms of technology and treatment. What, what I find so discouraging, and to put it in the mildest possible way, about the way Bernie Sanders talks about this is that it is so juvenile. I mean, never in any of his speeches or references to this topic or any other topic, frankly, do you ever get an acknowledgement that there are trade-offs in life, that you cannot just get everything you want and not have to pay for it. Um, that, you know, yeah, it would be great if everybody could have, you know, the level of health care that, you know, that, that Mike Bloomberg has access to, 
um, and have no pay, co-pays and no insurance and no, you know, no out-of-pocket expenses and so forth. Yeah, that would be great. It would also be great if we all had Bloomberg's money, but that's not the real world. The real world means that there have to be trade-offs, that, that it isn't free. you got to pay for it. And um, like just on the, the tweet that, that Ramesh posted, I was just glancing at some of the comments. And of course, you've got a whole series of people who live in countries that have you know so-called universal health care, particularly Canada, which... Um, Bernie Sanders always touts as being a model for us. And of course, what Linda was saying is absolutely right. The weights, you know, they, they do impose limits there. They just impose them in a different way. It's not based on price. It's based on rationing. You have to wait to get service. And arguably, if, if Canada did not have the escape valve of having the United States, you know, within about 30 miles of most of its citizens, so that they could slip over the border and get the care that they need when, rather than wait nine months for an MRI or whatever it is, um, that there wouldn't be such widespread support even in Canada for their system. Yes. I'm going to have to push back just a little okay. at this point. Yeah. You know, I've, got to be, I've got to be a Democrat at least part of the time. <laughs> uh, and I want All right. To, the clock is ticking. You can start now. <laughs> but I want to do it by by reiterating a very good point that Ramesh made a few minutes ago. If you compare the U.S. healthcare system to a lot of the others in the developed world, it is not the case that we use a lot more healthcare than they do. We pay more per unit of healthcare than they do. And that's not just true for drugs. It's true for salaries up and down our healthcare system. Physicians in the United States have a, you know, enjoy not only wealth but social status that is simply not the case in other countries. And so part of the problem that we're wrestling with is that we have allowed a very high unit cost medical system to develop. It becomes, I think, particularly clear in the case of prescription drugs. I was listening to Alex Azar this morning and you know, defending a bipartisan bill in the Senate that, uh, that Grassley and Ron Wyden have been, have been working on. And he was asked flatly, uh, do you believe what the drug companies are saying, namely that if these sorts of constraints are placed on drug prices, they won't be able to innovate anymore. And he snorted in derision, said that's, you know, that's absolutely untrue. There'll be plenty of innovation. So the idea that we have to have the cost structure that we do in order to have the innovation and the high-end medical service that we now enjoy is simply not true. We have a price problem. Well, we have the assertion that it's not true. I'm not sure we've proved it. Um, it might well, be true. Alex, Alex Azar, who used to be in the private sector, in this sector of the okay. economy, and who has every incentive in the world to take Neo2, adopt the argument of the drug companies in this case, uh, flatly repudiated and said that there is a lot of slack in the system that consumers could enjoy the benefits of rather than the drug companies and especially but, the intermediaries. Let me push back a little bit, Bill, because I, I think you're probably right. The per unit cost, you know, is the big factor. And the fact is we do pay our doctors more, but that may also uh, end up getting us doctors, at least the, you know, the people who are at the top of their field who are, in fact, not, not just the best in this country, they're the best in the world. Profits and the ability to get remuneration for your talents and your skills factors into the choices that people make. And if, you know, very smart, uh, very, very hardworking people are going to put themselves through the grinder in order to get uh, a degree and and then, you know, become uh, board certified and go and through pay the back process the loans. and pay back the loans. Well, that's another <laughs> issue. But the point is that that you're, you attract people in part because of that, I believe. Well, uh I think there's a really interesting issue in the relationship between the desire for material gain on the one hand and fitness to carry out a particular function on the other. Do I necessarily want the surgeon who is the eagerest person to make a lot of money doing what he does? I want the smartest one and the most skilled. And generally speaking, I think that you get paid more well, you know, in the, the most in, skilled. In the old days... 
medicine was a vocation. It was a calling. Well, it wasn't just a job. Okay. All right. So so let, let, let's bring this around to the, to the way we argue about these things uh, in our country. Because, look, however we may disagree about whether drug prices need to be, you know, artificially deflated and various other issues within medical care. No, they're artificially care, inflated they, to that, begin that, with. They may be, but, but, but here, here's the thing. There are many faults with the existing system. My personal view is that part of the reason we have such high costs is that we have way too many actors in the system, way too many middlemen, way too many non-disclosed, you know, agreements between, you know, the, the, the pharmacy, you know, panels that decide who gets what in your plan and, and negotiations that are all outside of the public view. Very little connection between person buying the health care and the person selling the health care. I think that's a problem. I think there are many other problems. But we always get this kind of this ridiculous and arid argument about whether we should just trash the entire system, which is Bernie Sanders' idea, and just replace it with a one a single single payer, or whether we should just, you know, resist all reforms. The fact is there are certain things that should be reformed and ideally they should be reformed on state levels where, um, to the degree possible, you can have experiments with doing things differently and see how it works out. But uh, but we have this uh, kind of all-or-nothing style of politics that makes that much more difficult. Can I jump in here just briefly? That uh, Just an observation on purely on the political side of this question of healthcare. It's Especially uh, in our time with Trump as president, we spend a lot of time wondering, wow, do, do, do um, politicians ever just do what's right? Or is everything a matter of political calculus? And last week, we were many of us were impressed with Mitt Romney because that was a rare sign of standing up for what you think is right. But I want to just point out that the Democrats here... Bill Clinton ran for president, and one of the first things he did was try to reform health care. And it failed, and as a result, the Democrats lost control of Congress for the first time in 40 years. Obama comes in, faces the biggest economic crisis since the Great Depression, and tries to use that as leverage to pass, well, he did get passed, the Affordable Care Act. And the result is a huge sweep in the midterm elections with, uh, with uh, the Republicans taking control by a large margin. And here we have now, for the third time in this, in these years, we have the, uh, so many of the Democratic candidates kind of rushing to say, yes, I want to reform health care again, as if as soon as they get into office after Trump, the first thing they want to do is touch this again. Like um, like moths to a flame, yeah. one might say. Yeah, well, it's, on the, it's, other, it's, on the other hand, Damon, Damon yeah, you're I mean, only... I, Yes. I'll let you go on. Sorry. Well, I mean, my only point, it's obvious. It's just, I personally have lived in countries with, I think, uh, better healthcare systems, both better in terms of quality and better in terms of affordability and reach uh, in the population, access and so forth. So I would love to see us with a different system. Getting there is unbelievably difficult with all of the trade-offs that several of you have been mentioning. Um and and here we are. Clearly, the Democrats truly believe and want this to improve, and they are willing to take kind of knock over the head over and over and over again to try to get it done. And that's something, at least. The, the piece of the story you didn't tell was what happened in the midterm elections of 2018, where the Republican effort to repeal and allegedly to replace... Uh, the Affordable Care Act was one of the most important factors in the Republican loss of control of the House of Representatives. So what's the through line from yeah, I was Clinton all the way through 2018? I think the answer is an intense public skepticism of politicians attempting to make sweeping changes to health care. Voters just worry about that. They don't believe the promises that a new system is going to be so much better than what they already have. And that works against either conservative or progressive attempts to radically overhaul the system. The Democrats have a chance, I think, to run against, as they did in 2018, 
a Republican attempt to overhaul the system by destroying what has now become the status quo of Obamacare. But of course, if they run on national health care instead or on single payer Medicare for all, they give the Republicans the exactly. opportunity to do that themselves. It's a squandered opportunity. Exactly. By the way, um, just to bring this to uh, update it as of today, um, the uh, Culinary Workers Union in Nevada is circulating uh, pamphlets opposing Bernie Sanders because they have a very hard-won contract that gives them excellent health care, and they don't want to lose it. Mm-hmm. So they're very, very skeptical about Bernie Sanders and his plan that would eliminate all such private uh, insurance. And let's just remember where our current uh, private health insurance program came from. It came from unions pushing when there were wage and price controls during World War II to provide health insurance uh, for their members as a way to provide a service. And and unions to this day, uh, that is one of their big calling cards. And when, you know, if you have the choice to pay union dues or not, if you're in a right to work state, for example, having a Cadillac Health insurance program is one of the things that makes it worth forking over your money out of your paycheck to be in the union. Okay, so um, we will doubtless return to the topic of health care many more times. Uh, but for now, I want to move on to uh, Revenge Week because, um, because Donald Trump, uh, having been acquitted, uh, last time we gathered, he had just finished his very uplifting comments in the East Room of the White House. Um, and uh, And... And since then, he has frog-marched both Vindmans out of the White House, um, Alexander, and also his brother, uh, Eugene, or Evgeny, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, So, uh, first of all, Alexander did nothing wrong, which was reaffirmed by Michael Kelly this week, who said he did nothing wrong. He did exactly what he's trained to do, point out when something might be illegal. John Kelly, sorry, uh, might be a... um, might be a violation of the law. It might be an illegal order. That's what that's what the military is supposed to do. Um, so he did that. He uh, fired Gordon Sondland. Well, no big loss there. <laughs> uh, he he then um, uh, announced that Elaine McCusker at the Defense Department was going to lose her job, and Jesse Liu, who um, was up for a post at Treasury, was also her her nomination is going to be pulled because she was a prosecutor who oversaw some of the cases against Trump cronies. Um, and so uh, let's let's talk about the bottom feeder, Roger Stone. Uh, uh, Ramesh, you want to fill us in about why Roger Stone is awaiting sentencing? So there has been a little bit of drama uh, out of the Justice Department and uh, the White House this week where um, prosecutors in the Roger Stone case were recommending a tough sentence at the high end of the sentencing guidelines against Roger Stone for a variety of infractions that uh, Stone has been found guilty of. And then uh, the president tweeted that um, that was too tough. It was unfair, a miscarriage of justice. And then the Justice Department came back and decided that they were going to change the recommendation, claiming it wasn't because of anything the president said. And then the president, of course, undercut that statement <laughs> within by, minutes by taking you. credit for it. Uh, and so what the judge is going to make of all this and whether the president ends up pardoning Stone, regardless of what the judge ends up sentencing him to, these are open questions. What all of the stories, though, strike strike me as telling us is something about the president. It seems to me throughout his presidency, Trump as a politician has been most likely to indulge his strongest emotional impulses under two circumstances. One is that he feels triumphant, and the other is that he feels aggrieved. And this is a moment where he feels both. Yes. Exactly. And, um, yeah, and by the way, ahead, he, went, he went after the judge in this case, too, uh, tweeting about her. He's gone after the foreman of the jury in this case. It is it is almost inconceivable. I mean, for those of us in Ramesh, Mona, and I certainly wrote a lot about President Obama when he was in office and things he did that we thought were inappropriate. For Republicans not to be willing to come out and say, you don't attack judges by name and go after them. You don't try to out uh, jurors, the, the foreman of the jury. 
uh, in, in these cases. I mean, it's you know, or whistleblowers or for whistleblowers that for that matter. But it's just it is so inconceivable to me that there are such spineless. People well, in so, the Republican so Party this is today. a very unconservative pose that the, the majority of the Republican Party is taking because a key part of conservatism is understanding that respect for institutions um, helps uh, glue society together, and that when you start undermining respect for institutions. I mean, not that they're perfect, not that they can't be criticized, but what Trump does, he calls people phony judges, so-called judges. For him, everything is about himself in a way that, you know, I'm surprised people don't just laugh. Uh, I mean, he had a spat with uh, with Kelly this week, which, um, you know, amounts to Kelly criticized him. And so he's going after Kelly now. And, you know, it's only a matter of time. And Kelly's wife. And yeah, it's, and it's only a matter of time before Trump starts tweeting that Kelly was begging for his job like a dog. I mean, that's certainly coming. And uh, you know, but but this this undermining of respect for institutions is part of his brand, and it's the one of the ways in which I think conservatives have made a terrible mistake by um, by rallying around him. Yes, I'm I'm going to ask a question, and this is this is a sincere question. It's not a gotcha question, right? I'm looking at three people who collectively have spent a whole lot of time in, around, and reporting on. Republican circles. I simply don't understand why so many senior Republican senators towards the twilight of their career with little to lose, uh, if they say what I'm sure they're thinking, but a lot to lose, uh, a lot to lose in the judgment of history if they don't. Why are they almost all to a man and a woman biting their tongues? Let's for, let's forget about the controversy about the impeachment articles. Did they rise to, I don't know, the level that the seas will rise to in 50 years if we keep on going? Or was it smaller than a breadbasket? Let's forget about all of that. This is so obvious. And they're saying nothing. Please explain this to me. Well. That that I don't think can be explained, but I think what we can do— Well, there must do, be some explanation. I think they're scared to death. What are they scared of? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've actually had conspiracy thoughts, which I'm not prone to, but in this instance, I think, does he have some compromise on each of these people? <laughs> are there files? Are there J. Edgar Hoover-type files on every United States senator that he keeps in the, in the Resolute desk? I don't know, because they do— seem to be frightened in a way that isn't reasonable to me. I mean, I don't know how you get to that point in life where you're a United States senator and you are afraid of nasty tweets or hate mail or insults. They're, that- not, they're not just afraid of nasty tweets. What they are afraid of is that their whole ecosystem is on the right. You know the the future jobs that they might get, the dinner parties they might be invited to. Chuck the Grassley's people. future jobs. Yes, right. yes, all of them. No, really, he was sitting on boards. You name it. I mean, it's all based on this right wing world that is Republican, and the Republican world is Trumpy now. And if you if you depart, Trump will punish you, and then so will his minions because that's the spirit of the age. And it is very difficult to ask somebody not just to stand up you know, and, and take a difficult vote and have a few tweets. It's not that. It's that his whole circle, everybody that he likes and respects and wants to be liked and respected by, will also turn on him. Well, there, there's one other, or her. There's one other thing, which is that, um, you know, and I thought of this when I was reading Senator um, Sherrod Brown's article in the Times a week or so ago, saying that behind closed doors, a lot of Republican senators will make all kinds of unflattering observations about President Trump and his conduct. That's true. I mean, I think we probably all of us have experienced that. But I think a lot of Republican senators also genuinely believe 
a lot of the pro-Trump or anti-anti-Trump case. They believe what they read in on the Wall Street Journal editorial page yeah. about the abuses, ale- the alleged abuses of the bureaucracy, um, some of them real, actually, mm-hmm. uh, against President Trump and Trump advisors. They believe you know, that, that Adam Schiff has not been an honest broker through this process and so on. It's, they believe, you know, the, well, the president has a right to direct foreign policy, to fire people, all of which is true to a certain point. Um, so it's not just a question of, uh, of their being afraid of things. It's, it's also a point of their having certain beliefs or at least rationalizations that allow them to stay safely in line. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Can I add something to that? Yeah, go ahead, Which I agree with. Um, But something that Bill said, actually, a couple of episodes on the podcast ago that I've I've cited in a couple of tweets, because it was a a good point, that if you kind of tick down the different factions within the Republican Party and the kind of policy, uh, real policy concerns that they have... Trump has fulfilled a remarkably large amount of them from pro-lifers and people who want certain kinds of judges to the tax cut and, and regulation cut factions to even to more recently to kind of hawks who want to do things like, uh, you know, sh- uh, kill terrorists. Blow up Soleimani, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. like, and, and there are others. If you go th- down, every one of them has immigration. Kind of gotten... Yeah, Im- and then the immigration uh, faction that has felt neglected for so long is now being served both at the level of rhetoric and at the level of policy on the border. So you add it all up and you have a very happy Republican Party. The only thing that is really unique to Trump in all of this, aside from, you know, tweaking, tweaking some things like immigration further to the right and, and some trade differences. The main difference is the kind of way it is packaged and sold as a kind of right wing performance piece. Uh, and that is, that is sort of the, the thing that I think we're all talking about Republicans just going along with while looking at the ground somewhat ashamed. Like they just sort of, I think a lot of them are making a calculation of, yeah, I hate this stuff. This is wrong. But the price to be paid for getting every single thing I want is we have to let this maniac just do this in public and look like a moral lunatic and, and, and do these corrupt things. Uh, because that's what it takes to actually win and get stuff done that we've wanted done for all these but, years. Now, maybe that's too cynical. I'm not a Republican. I, but I that's the way it looks from this side. I don't disagree with uh, what you've said or what Ramesh said in terms of the policies. I don't know if it's 80%, 70%, 90% of the policies that Trump has put into place that I agree with. But it's a big portion of it. I'm going to agree with more of what Trump has done in policy, in judges, in a whole host of areas than any of the Democrats who are going to be nominated. But I think the point that that Mona was making, that as a conservative, as somebody who believes that there is something about um, institutions themselves that is worth conserving and that, and that that is part of what it means to be a conservative, that's what I don't get. And would if you could get a group of senators to go in and talk to Trump and try to explain to him, you know, that some of what he does and says is so in- terribly harmful, do you think that he's going to take it out by saying, okay, I'm going to start appointing liberals to the to the courts, or I'm going to, you know, start putting on regulations, and I'm going to become a, you know, a climate change uh, guy? I, I, I don't think any of that would happen. Why don't they have... The, in my uh, culture, would call cajones, uh, to go in and speak to him and to try to get him to behave differently because he you, you is know what? damaging. I, I seriously think he would probably say to them, away from the, the mics, he would probably say, you know what, you're a sucker. You believe in these supposedly neutral rules, but you lose when you play by those rules. Do you want to win? If you want to win, you got to play to win. And if that means bending or breaking the rules, too bad. 
grow up. You know, that's he what once I think said, he would say. Just very quickly, he once he once said uh, that his father had taught taught him that there were two kinds of people in the world: killers and losers. Ramesh, you know, I, I mean, it's it's easy to say. It probably is true that the reason why Trump's approval rating is so much lower than his approval on economic issues or than what you'd expect given the state of the economy is all of this, uh, his acting, I, th- I think Linda said, like a maniac. But I do wonder whether it's on net maybe helped him. Maybe one reason why he's got such a strong level of support among the base level of Republicans isn't necessarily that everybody loves the style, but I do think there is something to the idea, although some people obviously do love this, the style, but I do think that also people defend him so much because there's so much they have to defend. And it it kind of habituates you into uh, into being on his side because you've had to rationalize so very much over time. That's a really an interesting idea. Well, Which is why I was always concerned about the transactional case for Trump because it seemed to me – while you could certainly make a logical argument in 2016 saying, I'm going to vote for him with serious reservations, uh, that over time, having made that choice, it would become harder and harder to resist rationalizing away the reservations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I think the, the half-life for that was about two weeks, I, I noticed. <laughs> I mean, you know, two weeks from the period of time when you said, yes, I'm going to vote for him, hold my nose, to rationalizing his behavior, and then finally you reach um, outright enthusiasm. It doesn't, it doesn't take long. Yeah, go ahead, I, I just I just wanted to close on that subject by pointing out that we began this segment of the program by talking about Roger Stone. And really, it is perfectly fitting that we maybe conclude this section of it about Roger Stone, because his style of politics now is the Republican Party style of politics. It is pure get as low into the dirt and into the mud as you can lie cheat steal throw so much garbage in the face of your opponents that they don't even know how to respond and you'll win and that that is really what we're talking about here damon rather ramesh used the phrase through line before there's a through line here it's a through line straight from 1952 to 2020 and it has one name Roy, Roy Cohn, Cohn. <laughs> yes this is the Roy Conization of American politics God save us all yeah yes. I, there's a there's a movie true. that I want to see it's called uh, get me my Roy Cohn or where's my Roy Cohn I, I'm, I'm curious to see that it's a documentary uh, should be should be pretty interesting by the way I mean the, the, I, I agree with what with all of the foregoing I just want to mention though about Roger Stone Yes, I mean, there's a part of him that is, you know, pure performance and pure artifice. But then again, there's a part of him, just as with Trump, honestly, where he's just kind of nuts. And one of the things that one of the things that he did while he was on trial, and after the judge had admonished him about his tweeting and his public statements, she put a gag order on him. And how did he flout the gag order? By tweeting out, or maybe it was on Instagram, a picture of the judge's face with crosshairs on it. Right. Now, <laughs> you have to say, there's, a, there's an, a screw loose there somewhere, right? I mean, <laughs> but that's, that's our guy. That's our president's favorite person. Um, and uh, we will see. By the way, the um, there was a lot of talk about him being sentenced to this, you know, seven to nine years. That was not done. It was it was a recommendation. Now it's been pulled back. In any event, Amy Berman Jackson, the judge, was going to be the one to make that decision. Very unlikely that she would have gone with the full nine years. But in any event, um, it is now so sticky with uh, political influence and so on that uh, that it looks awful no matter what no matter what the outcome is. And of course, as we all know, Trump is going to pardon Stone. 
So and, and Manafort and yeah, he'll, so, he'll he'll do that with Manafort. Yeah, as well. that must so. that must have been a heck of a law firm in its yes. time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't a law black, firm; it was a political consulting. <laughs> I almost hired them black when I ran Manafort. for Senate. Thank, they didn't want me, thank God. <laughs> but I, let me just put in a word. I, I knew Charlie Black. Uh, I know when him I, very well. Okay, yeah, okay. So, so he, that, he is a good guy. He's, and he's, he's not, clean. Right. He's not he's in clean. this. Yeah, yeah. No, but he was one of the partners. There's a famous Moliere play. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where you know, where you know, one of the the bumbling anti-hero finally asks himself, "How did I end up on this boat?" <laughs> oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's right. Okay, final segment. We're not going to do the one on Bloomberg. We're going to uh, delay that for another time because we've gone long on these other topics. But I thought it was worth keeping the conversation on where it was. Um, so, um, so let's go around table and do our final segment on things we think need more attention uh, or something from the other side that you liked or whatever. Well, I think we need more attention on Russian propaganda in the heartland. Uh, we now have a radio station, Radio Kremlin, broadcasting from Kansas. Apparently, it's very popular. Um, at least it's, it's open to- about it. Yes, at least it's open about it. Yeah. I don't know. This just sort of sends you know, shivers down my spine. I, this scares me, this idea that we're going to have a propaganda. Uh, and, you know, and it's apparently the only thing they are doing is they're making the station uh, owner have to register as a foreign agent because apparently, you know, the other uh, foreign uh, media that are that are in the United States do have to register as, as foreign agents. But I don't know, sort of scary. Ramesh? I just wanted to express my appreciation for New Hampshire over Iowa. (laughs) New Hampshire did it right, got the job done. The (laughs) Iowa caucus, of course, was a disaster. And not the first time the Iowa caucuses have been a disaster. It took them two weeks in 2012 to tell us who'd actually won the Iowa Republican caucuses. And they got it wrong. To this day, we don't know who won the 1988 Democratic Iowa caucuses for real. Um, I think mm. it is time to to put that system out of its misery and move to something more like what the good people of New Hampshire have done. Agreed. Bill? Well, in the same vein, uh, the... You know, the nominating process that's been in place since 1972, at least among Democrats, is now on its last legs. And in my private conversations with people who are going to have to do have something to do with changing the system, there is more appetite for significant structural change in the nominating process than I've heard for quite some time. Uh, and uh uh, not only I think we have seen the last of Iowa, at least the last of Iowa as the first, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I think that there's going to be increased pressure to eliminate caucuses altogether, to come up with a different order and pattern for presidential nominations. This is a big deal, mm-hmm. right? This mm-hmm. is this is the end of about a 50-year run for a certain style of nomination in the Democratic Party. Damon. Well, um, let's see. I guess my my favorite read of the week uh, is a um, an account of the latest national conservatism meeting, which took place in Italy uh, about a week and a half ago. And Anne Applebaum, who is now at the Atlantic, uh, I attended and wrote a a somewhat uh, chilling and uh, thoughtful account of what she heard there, uh, titled, uh, uh, This is How Reaganism and Thatcherism End. So, uh, not to sound too dark on this bulwark podcast here, but uh, those of you who are interested in these issues and what's happening uh, in these trends around the globe uh, would be, uh, you know, well advised to, to read Anne's, uh, essay about what took place at that conference, what they were saying, and what it might mean. I second that motion. I, I read it too. I thought it was excellent. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about China's method of virus fighting. Um, China has made, has a made for TV, uh, propaganda effort showing what they're doing to fight this coronavirus. And it, the whole thing is 
first of all, it's preposterous. Um, you know, the, the, it was so obvious that the numbers that they were giving out were false. You know, they, first they, they let it out that, you know, oh, they had a couple dozen cases of this new virus and they're, they're watching it and everything is fine. And then, you know, within a week it was, yeah, there are several hundred cases. And then for them, I mean, it was just crazy how they just sort of dribbled it out. And then they had pictures. They were on. They were on the front page of the New York Times and on news uh, sources all over the world of you know bulldozers and backhoes working to build these hospitals. They said we're going to be putting up hospitals in two weeks. You cannot put up a hospital in two weeks. You can build an infirmary, maybe. Uh, you can build a place to warehouse people. There is absolutely no way you can build a hospital. And then now you have, of course, you know the the crackdown on anybody talking about it. There was that doctor who was was abused because he was the one who blew the whistle on on the thing and he then contracted the virus and tragically died and he's become a hero to the Chinese people. But finally, I don't know if you've all seen these pictures, but now we're getting these images of people of 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 officials going down city streets and spraying this white substance everywhere, right? On the street, into doorways, into people's homes, into restaurants. What the heck is in that spray? I have no idea. Uh but I have never seen anybody say that this is a valid way of fighting a viral infection. Who knows what kinds of damage they're doing to humans, animals, uh, the water supply, and so forth in this effort. Anyway, it's all a lesson about um, what happens when authoritarian states can do exactly what they want and get no pushback from the people uh, because the people are powerless. So a lot of skepticism about uh, coronavirus and China. And with that, unless anybody has a comment, we will wrap it up. And uh, did you do you want to say something, Bill? No? Okay. So thank you, one and all. Thanks so much for joining us, Ramesh. You're welcome. Um, I do want to just mention that we are aware that there have been some audio problems with this podcast, and we are working diligently to correct them. So we thank you all for hanging in there, and uh, we will get it fixed. Thank you so much, and until next week. Bye.